you want to take your Bibles this morning, we're going to be back in Revelation. We took a break last week for Mother's Day, but we're going to rejoin our study in Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 7 now, Revelation chapter 7. We're going to read through the whole chapter this morning. It's not a long chapter. But what we see in chapter 7 is the deliverance from God's wrath. It's those people that God delivers from the wrath of God, specifically in the tribulation. But there's principles of God's deliverance that are here as well that we need to see. So let's read together and follow along as I read chapter 7, starting verse 1. The Bible says, After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed in hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Naphtalim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all the nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, And fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light upon them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Let's take a minute and pray before we get into our message this morning. Our Father God, again, we just come before you, and with your word in our hands, before our eyes, Lord, we need it to be imposed upon our spirits and in our minds. Lord, we need your teaching to challenge us, to enlighten us, to give us understanding of what you called us to and what your purpose is in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask for your teaching today, for your spirit to open our eyes and our minds to the the truth of your word. Lord, we need you to do your work in us for this to be accomplished, and so we give ourselves to you. Lord, I pray that you would just use me and fill me with your spirit, that I would speak boldly your truth as you give me utterance. And Lord, teach us all together as we submit ourselves to your authority. And may your work be accomplished now. May your word not return turn void as you promised that it would do its work in us now. And we thank you for all you're going to do. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. As we enter into chapter 7 of Revelation, let me just give you a real, a real quick review Uh, We came out of chapter 6 a couple of weeks ago and finished that up. And in chapter 6, we have the six seals, the first six seals of the book that's in the hand of Christ being opened by Christ. And as these seals are opened, 
judgments are issued out upon the earth and to mankind on the earth. And just a very quick review, but the first four of those seals were what we know as the horsemen or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the first one was a false peace that was ushered into the world through the governmental system, specifically with the Antichrist coming to power. Right after that, on its heels, was war that broke out on the earth as people rebelled, not just against God, but against the Antichrist, against the world system. So there's wars and rumors of wars. Then followed that, that was followed by famine, which always follows wars because there's a shortage of food and rationing, as we saw. And then with famine comes death. That was the fourth seal, the pale horse, that a fourth of the earth population was killed or died through war, through starvation, through disease, through natural disasters, even wild beasts, the Bible says. So that was the beginning of the judgments. And as we get to the fifth seal in chapter 6, we see the prayer of the martyrs who are under the altar of God praying for vengeance, praying that God would bring vengeance upon those people who have perpetuated their deaths and the evil that led to their martyrdom. And then the sixth seal was totally different. Sixth seal was kind of a transition into God's hand directly pouring judgment on the earth. There was a great earthquake. And with that great earthquake, there were heavenly anomalies that happened. The sun was darkened. The earth looked like blood. The stars fell from the sky. All of these things happened. And as we see this great earthquake, it's an earthquake like earth has never experienced before. And in fact, could very possibly have shaken the heavens, as is prophesied in the Old Testament prophecy. And then in the midst of, or at the the end of all this, as this judgment is being poured out by God, we see at the end of chapter 6, all of mankind hiding themselves in the rocks and hills and calling upon the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of, of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They recognize at that point that this is God's judgment. They know that this is God's judgment and wrath being poured out upon the earth, and yet they still do not repent. We're going to see that again as we go forward into chapters 8 and chapter 9. But as we go into chapter 7 from chapter 6, we stop with the sixth seal at the end of chapter 6, And chapter 7 is kind of a parenthetical. It's a pause in the action, if you will, because we don't immediately see the seventh seal. In fact, you won't see the seventh seal until chapter 8. That's where chapter 8 begins, when the seventh seal was opened. So this is a parenthetical phrase or a, a period of time that's kind of a pause between the sixth and seventh seals. And we take back or take a step back in this chapter from the focus on God's judgment to focus on two groups, kind of a look behind the scenes at the people that God is delivering in the midst of all this judgment, okay? And these two groups are the 144,000 witnesses that are all Jews and then the believers who are martyred, okay? And we're going to look at how God delivered them. But these two groups will be spared the wrath, the the real wrath of God's judgment. They'll be protected from the worst of that wrath being poured out on the earth, but they'll be delivered in different ways, okay? So while this, all this judgment is happening on earth, Jesus Christ gives John an understanding of what God is doing behind the scenes. And this is something we need to remember, okay? There's a great principle right here at the surface of things. What we see apparent to us is not always what God is doing. There is a lot that God is doing behind the scenes in our lives as well in the lives of other people that we don't know about. And so we have to be careful that we're not just assuming that because we don't see God working in the way we think he should work, that he really doesn't care, that he's not paying attention, he's forgotten about us. God is always working. God is always accomplishing his plan, and sometimes we just don't see it. And here he gives John kind of a glimpse behind the scenes to remind us that he continues to fulfill his promises and to protect his people, even though it looks like the world is in total chaos and turmoil. 
And that principle is true today. It's not just true for the tribulation period. It's true for the tribulation that we go through. God is protecting us. God has his hand on us. That's why we read Psalm 91 this morning, because God is our refuge. And if we're trusting in him, then he will provide everything we need, including that deliverance that we pray for. So the focus on this chapter is on God's deliverance. But I want you to also pay attention to this. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that brings this deliverance in both groups. The Holy Spirit has not been removed from the earth. Even though the church has been raptured at this point, before the tribulation starts, the church being the temple of the Holy Ghost, each believer being that temple, as 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, we're gone, we're in heaven at this point. So we've been delivered, literally, from all of this as the church. But there are people who are on earth still who will believe and God continues to protect and deliver them through the tribulation period. But the Holy Spirit is still doing his work. Now, during the tribulation, the Holy Spirit is not removed totally. He removes his hand of restraint from evil so that Satan runs rampant. The evil of mankind is manifest to an extreme that we've never seen before because God is no longer restraining them. But the Holy Spirit still is doing his work. And that is witnessed in the fact that he seals these groups of people, he protects these groups of people, and he delivers these groups of people. That is the work of the Holy Spirit of God, and we cannot forget that. So the Holy Spirit is still alive and well and doing his work on earth during this tribulation period, even though his hand of restraint is removed from evil that's being perpetuated on the earth. Now, I want to look at this passage with that introduction and kind of break it down verse by verse and look at the two groups that we've talked about here. Verse 1, it says, and after these things, when it starts with a phrase like this, it's a transition phrase. Jesus Christ is giving John kind of a different view or a new vision in a sense. Okay, All of Revelation is a vision or a series of visions that Jesus gives to John to give him a glimpse into the future of what God is going to do in the end times. And here he says, after these things, and this is a transition. So we stopped at the sixth seal. We're going to kind of shift gears and look over here for a minute to see something else that God is doing. It's almost like as you're watching a play and one scene finishes and the curtain comes down and then the curtain goes up and the next scene starts. That's what after these things mean. It's the same play. It's just a new scene. And so that's what we have here at the beginning of verse 1. And he says, After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. So the first thing John sees is four angels. And he says they're standing on the four corners of the earth. Now, believe it or not, and hopefully none of you hold to this theory. I think we've all been through school and read the science about the round earth theory, okay? But people will take this verse and say, well, because the angels were standing on the four corners of the earth, that proves that the earth is flat like a sheet of paper. That's not what it's saying, okay? God uses this phrase, the four corners of the earth, to denote the four points of the compass, north, south, east, west, okay? So he basically is inferring here these angels are covering the entire earth, not physically in their being, but in their power, in what their influence is, in what they're about to do will cover the entire earth. That's what this four corners is talking about. And he says, as they stand on the four corners of the earth, they hold back the four winds of the earth. Now, again, if you listen to uh, weather reports Sometimes they will report the temperature and then the wind speed. And they'll say the wind is coming out of the east at 20 miles per hour or whatever. Okay? So they, they define the wind by the direction. East, north, south, west, etc. And that's exactly what the Bible is giving us here, holding the four winds of the earth. All of the wind that would be on the earth, the angels are controlling it. And then look at what he says about how they control it. That the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now, there are some commentators who take this phrase that the angels are holding back the winds on the earth, literally. And they'll say, 
that there was no wind at all during this period. Think of it as, again, this is a pause in the judgments of God. And all of a sudden the judgments stop and there's no wind. There's no waves lapping up on the shore of the sea. There's no breeze. There's just still a deathly quiet. It's almost like, okay, I came through that round. Let me take a breath. And what's next? And that's kind of the implication that we have here. But it's possible that the angels literally were holding back the wind on the earth so that there was nothing moving, no clouds blowing in the sky, nothing. It's just this deathly stillness. In addition to that, there is a sense of God's judgment that's implied here because the wind often in the Bible talks or is in relation to God's judgment upon the earth. In Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 36, God talks about the wind of judgment against Elam. Elam was a nation that came against Israel early in their history, and God destroyed them. That was the wind of his judgment. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 2, we studied this when we studied the book of Daniel. It talks about the four winds blowing upon the great sea and the the beasts, four beasts rising up out of the sea. The four winds, that is the judgment of God that he would bring upon Israel through these four empires that would rise up in history. And then in Hosea chapter 13, there God talks about an east wind that brings judgment upon Israel. So these winds are talked about through scripture in reference to God's judgment. Which makes sense because if there's a pause now in God's judgment, then the wind of judgment is not blowing. So we have just this moment when nothing is happening and everybody's just kind of waiting to see what's next on the agenda. So the angels, God has commissioned these angels to hold back the winds, not just physically on the earth, but the winds of his judgment. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, for the duration of the interlude described in chapter 7, judgment will be held back as the angels turn off the essential engine of the earth's atmosphere. Now, God is in control of nature. And if God decides that no wind will blow, God can make that happen. And God uses angels to carry out his will. In fact, all through Revelation, you see the angels being involved in carrying out God's judgment. And that's nothing new. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve when they sinned, and God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. Who was it that stood at the gate of the garden to defend it? It was an angel. God sent an angel, a death angel, to Egypt to come over and kill the firstborn. So God uses his angels, even in this aspect of judgment, to carry out his work. And here, he has them literally holding back both the wind and the judgment that's about to be poured out upon the earth. The word holding back here, when it says they held back the wind, is the Greek word krateo. It means an emphatic word that indicates something struggling to break free from the constraint that it's in. In other words, we kind of have this idea that there is something ready to be unleashed. And when we get to chapter 8, boy, is it unleashed. Okay, and then it just compounds and starts in earnest, and the judgment just keeps getting poured out one upon another. But for now, it's being held back by the angels. In verse 2, it says there's another angel, another angel. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. Now, obviously, these four angels that are standing there have been given power to bring judgment upon the earth. That's what verse 2 says. But another angel rises up, and then this angel seems to have authority over these angels, giving them instructions about what their job is going to be and about when it's going to happen. Now, obviously, in the Bible, there's many examples of kind of a hierarchy of angels. This is, this is uh, a true thing, where we look at our military and we see you know, majors and generals and lieutenants all in their place, and God has the same kind of hierarchy of leadership in his angelic authorities as well. Uh, when we studied Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, an angel comes to Daniel and he says, well, I would have been here three weeks earlier, but I was delayed 
in fighting a demonic force in Persia. And Michael, the archangel, came and helped me, the one who has been set over Israel. And he names Michael as the, the protector of Israel and kind of the high angel in that position. And then he says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to help Michael fight these other spirits. And so there's this hierarchy, and that seems to be the case here, as we see in verse 2 in, in, Daniel, in Revelation chapter 7, where this fifth angel rises up who has leadership authority and tells them, here's what's going to happen. Verse 3, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their forehead. So he says, hold on. Stop everything. Don't do anything. Just hold on to the judgment that's about to be unleashed until we've accomplished this task that God has given us. And that task is to seal these specific chosen people that God has picked out to be his, his witnesses during this time period. So he says, we're not going to start these judgments. We're not going to let loose all of this judgment until God has sealed these people. And he says, we have sealed. That means he and some other angels. It may be these. It may be other angels. But it's the work of the angels that seal these 144,000 witnesses of the Jews. Now, again, sealing in the Bible is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's God's power that does this. But here he uses the angels to accomplish this task. And he says they're sealed in their foreheads. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like. Okay, I don't know if it's an actual mark, if it's a reference to something that God instills in them, if it's something that God does in their bodies. I don't know. It just says that they're sealed in their foreheads. But it's interesting as we get up into later chapters of Revelation and we read about the Antichrist, and we read about Satan's work on the earth, and he wants to seal people to follow him, and they have to accept a mark, the mark of the beast. And where is that put? On their forehead or on their right hand. See, Satan always is an imposter. Satan always tries to duplicate God's work and make it look like the real thing, and yet he's an imposter. Okay? Here God is sealing people in their forehead. If it's a physical mark, possibly so. We don't know. But God is sealing these people, and it's the angel's job to do this. Now, he calls them servants of God. He says, until these servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. The word servants of God here means bond servants or slaves, doulos. This is the same word that Paul uses when he says that we are to be slaves of Christ. Doulos. That means these people that God chooses here have already dedicated themselves to him. They already are believers. Okay? They are servants of God doing his work, submitting to his authority. And if we want to use this word, these are the elect of God in the tribulation, specifically chosen out by God for this purpose to spread the truth of the gospel during this seven-year period. But they are the ones who are trusting in God, who are faithful. They are looking for the true Messiah, which is Christ. That is a necessity if you are to be a servant of God. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ, looking for his coming. Now, we've in this chapter, the church has already been and gone. Christ has already raptured the church. He hasn't come back all the way to the earth yet in his second coming. But these people are looking forward to that. They know Christ is the Messiah. They know he's coming back in the near future. And so their faith and trust is in him. And until that time, they will remain faithful. These are the ones who have, will overcome. Now, this sealing in their foreheads actually is not the first time that we see this. I already mentioned the Antichrist will try to do the same thing. But God actually did this before. If you go back to Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel chapter 9, God is looking at the sinfulness of Judah, the tribe of Judah specifically, their idolatry, their rebellion. They've gone away from him. He's looking at this sinfulness, and he instructs his angels at the beginning of Ezekiel 9 to go to the earth, and there are several angels that he calls with swords to go and slaughter all people of Judah who will not obey. 
But he says, before that happens, I'm going to call one other angel. And he says, the one who has the ink horn, the one who has some kind of marking device. And he's going to go around and he uses the same terminology. I want you to seal those faithful ones on their foreheads so that when these death angels come to destroy the unbelievers, these people will be protected. Very similar to the Passover when the people who were sealed under the blood in the houses were protected from God's death angel. And so this sealing of people on their foreheads is not new in Revelation. God did it in Ezekiel chapter 9. But it's some kind of protection that God puts on these people so that they cannot be harmed. We need to understand that. It's not just that God has chosen them for a specific purpose. They cannot be touched by the agents of evil. God preserves them. And in fact, these 144,000 witnesses are what we call the first fruits. If we read further in Revelation, we'll come across that word, first fruits, and it's in reference to these 144,000 witnesses. But these have been sealed. In verse 4, it describes, it says, I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, let me talk about this 144,000 specifically, okay? The number 144,000 here represents 144,000, okay? 12 tribes times 12,000 from each tribe. And if you took math through sixth grade, hopefully you can figure that one out, okay? 144,000, that's an exact number. It's not 139,000. It's not about 150,000. God says 144,000 witnesses. And he says 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. And he names the tribes here. There are people who want to look at this and say, well, this 144,000 is really just kind of a figurative thing. It just means a large number. And they'll want to use this to say this is talking about the church. And that see, the church is still going through the tribulation. If you look at verse 4, what is the last phrase there? It says, of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Okay? Now, if you read, and we will in just a minute, verses 5 through 7, or through 8, I'm sorry, it names the tribes. Now, if this is the church... Which tribe are you from? Pick one. I mean, do you know? Okay, now, first of all, are any of us Jews? Okay, I don't know that I have any Jewish heritage in me. Well, maybe if we go back to Noah, you know, Noah was in Abraham's line, so kind of indirectly. Okay, but this is not the church, folks. God says specifically, it's 144,000 witnesses that he chooses from Israel, and he names 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. So this is nothing else than 144,000 Jews that are alive during the tribulation, that are following God, that are trusting God, that God protects and seals to accomplish his purpose of becoming a testimony to the world. That's what it is. We can't redefine this. Now, we know of a group, George and Brenda have firsthand knowledge of the witnesses, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And the big question when I talk to them that I love to start with is, how come there's more than 144,000? You know, oh, well, that means there's special people. No, this is Jews that are alive during the tribulation. We can't interpret it any other way. God is very specific about that, okay? So it's 144,000 Jews that are actually alive during the tribulation that God seals and ordains for this purpose. Now, as you read through this list of tribes in verses 5 through 8, I want to point out several issues that kind of jump out at me, and I'm going to bring them to your attention. First of all, they're not in any particular order. Um, 18 or 19 times in other places in Scripture, the 12 tribes of Israel are listed. And there's no particular pattern that it follows. Okay, when Jacob uh, blessed his sons, he didn't go from oldest to youngest. This, 
obviously does not go from oldest to youngest. When Israel is named by tribes and other passages, there's no particular order that it follows. There's 18 or 19 different ways in which they're listed here. But what's interesting is that even if we just assume, okay, we'll go by firstborn, Reuben was the firstborn, Reuben's not the first one named here. Who's the first one? It's Judah, okay? What's the reason for that? Well, we can speculate. God doesn't tell us. We can speculate and say, well, Reuben was the firstborn, but Reuben rebelled. Reuben lived in sin. And so he lost his birthright because of his immorality. And that birthright was passed to the next, which was Judah. Now, what's significant about the tribe of Judah? The Lion of Judah. That's the tribe Jesus Christ came through. Okay? Maybe that's why God put it first. We don't know. But it's different. Second, and here's an interesting thought, God specifically calls out these 12 tribes, and he says, I'm going to pick 12,000 from each tribe. In 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. That was what Christ talked about when he said, one stone shall not remain standing upon another. They leveled the whole thing. In the temple were stored all the genealogical records of what people were from what tribes, and that was all lost. No one has any idea today, adamantly or verifiably, what tribe they came from if you're a Jew. You can't say, well, I could follow my lineage back to David. There's not a single person on this earth that has documentation that can verifiably prove that. It was all lost in 70 AD. So how do we know that there's 12,000 from each tribe? Because God said so. God hasn't lost track. God doesn't need documents stored away someplace because God knows exactly who these people are. He knows exactly what tribes they come from. And he knows exactly what he's called them to. Now, there's a great principle for us there, because God will never lose track of you. He will never lose track of his purpose for you. And it doesn't matter if you feel like sometimes you're wandering around without a purpose, or everything that you are living for all of a sudden kind of falls apart. God still knows exactly who you are. God knows where he called you from and where he wants to bring you. The book of Jeremiah says, I have plans for you. This is God's words to bring you to a good end. He will not lose track of us in the course of life. He has not lost track of these people, even though the records of their genealogy have been lost, and they themselves don't even know who they are. God does. That's the God that we serve. One more thing I want to point out, and there's more I could point out, but for time I just want to limit it to these. The tribes of Dan and Ephraim are not listed in this list. Now, Dan and Ephraim were... Tribes of Israel, okay? They were sons of Jacob. But they're not listed here. Both the tribes of Dan and Ephraim are recorded in the Old Testament to have abandoned the worship of God and gone wholeheartedly after idolatry. In fact, the tribe of Dan was the first one to do that. Also, the tribe of Ephraim was uh, defected from the ruling house of Judah, as recorded in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7 refers to this. But Ephraim was the first one that instigated the division of the kingdoms into north and south when they rebelled against the rule of Judah. Remember when the, the Israel divided? You have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Ephraim was the first one to propagate that division. And so in these sins... We can assume God has brought judgment upon them, and they are no longer fit to testify of the truth of God because of their rebellion, because of their idolatry. But Ephraim and Dan are both listed in Ezekiel 48 when it talks about the blessings that the tribes will receive in the millennial kingdom they will inherit those promises because God's promises don't change. God's promise to Israel was an everlasting promise. It's called an everlasting covenant. It started with Abraham. 
and then came down through the seed of Isaac and Jacob and then to his 12 sons. Those were the ones those promises were given to specifically. And even though they may have rebelled or some of them may have rebelled, God's promises will not fail. Now again, there's a great lesson for us. God does not fail in the promises he makes to us, even though we might go astray. He brings rain on the just and the unjust. The sun comes out for everyone, not just for believers. Okay, God provides food for the whole world, not just for those who follow him. He has promised that he will provide all of our needs. And how many times has God not provided your needs just because you decided you weren't going to follow him that day? Or you skipped your devotions or didn't pray that day? Did you go without food? Are you automatically homeless? God's promises are still in effect. And specifically here, we have God's eternal promise to Israel, to those tribes of Israel that is going to be fulfilled even though these two tribes went in rebellion and idolatry. God doesn't forget his promises. So those are interesting things in this list that we read in verses 5 through 8. I want to mention, I already brought this up, but this group of 144,000 witnesses appear again in Revelation chapter 14. If you want to turn over there, it's just a few pages, because I want you to read this. Revelation chapter 14, right at the beginning of the chapter, it says, I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. We just read about it. Verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder. I heard the voice of harpers, harping with harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and unto the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So in chapter 14, we see these 144,000 described again. And here's what we find out from this passage. These will sing a new song that no one else can sing. Now remember, we kind of had that back in chapter 4 and 5, when the elders sang a new song that no one else knew. It was a song of redemption because the angels don't know that song. The angels haven't been redeemed. Only believers have been redeemed. The church These 144,000 witnesses have a special song of redemption that they alone can sing. It also says that they're all virgins. None of them are married. None of them ever have had physical relations with any women. It references that they are personal assistants to Christ. In verse 4, it says they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. It means they're right there with him when he's on the earth. They are the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. It means they are the first humans on earth that are destined and sealed by God to go through the tribulation and directly into the, the millennial kingdom without dying. This is the first group that God has chosen as that privileged few. And they are without fault before the throne, verse 5. It says, they, there is no guile in their mouth. They are without fault. Now, does that mean they're perfect? No. It means that they've trusted the blood of Christ to cover, to forgive, to remove their sin. And that is their purpose, is to live for Christ, to trust him, to bring him through every day. And so it's the testimony of these 144,000 Jewish witnesses that God will bring through them the gospel of salvation to the world during the tribulation. That is their purpose. That is what God sets them apart for, and he protects them so that they can fully accomplish that purpose throughout the entire seven years. No one can touch them. God steals them for this purpose. So literally, we have these elect ones of Israel who will become light to the world. Now, isn't that God's purpose from the beginning in choosing Israel? They were to proclaim his name among many nations. They were to bless the earth. They would be a blessing to all nations. And here, even in the tribulation, God is fulfilling that purpose in a way that never before has been fulfilled as he sets apart these specific 
witnesses for that purpose. And he protects them so they can accomplish that purpose. Now, if you want God's protection so that you can accomplish your stuff in your life, you're going to be disappointed. God's protection is in God's place and in God's way. If you go off on your own, you can't say, well, you know, God, I want you to protect me so I can have a great life. God protects these 144,000 to accomplish this purpose of being a testimony to the whole earth. That is why they are alive. That is why God keeps them alive. And for no other reason, that's what God has called them to. And through these ones, all the nations of the earth literally will be blessed with the gospel of the Messiah of Jesus Christ. And many from all nations of the world during the tribulation period will be saved. That's why God has them on the earth, to bring people to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that takes us to our second group. Go down to verse 9. And I'll do this quickly. Verse 9. I should get back to Revelation 7. After this I beheld, lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Here's the second group that God delivers through the tribulation. Millions of people who are saved through the testimony of these 144,000 witnesses. Now this would include both Jews and Gentiles. The 144,000 are a special group of Jews that God ordains for this specific purpose. But there are many other Jews who will believe. And they will be saved during the tribulation period. And it says a great multitude that no one could count. These are people that are saved during the tribulation period. Not people in the church. Not people saved throughout history. This is just the seven years of the tribulation. And it says there's such a great multitude that nobody could count them. Talk about revival. The period of the tribulation is not going to be just one of great judgment. It's going to be one of great revival. And if you look throughout history, it's in times of judgment, it's in times of persecution that the church grows the most. And here, even though these are not the church because the church has been removed, they are still going to become followers of Christ. There's still going to be millions and millions of people saved in the seven years of the tribulation, the greatest time of revival in the earth's history because the Holy Spirit is not done yet. Now, we saw a little bit of these people in in the fifth seal, the martyrs under the altar. Remember, they were praying for God's vengeance to be brought, and God's answer to them was, wait a little while. There's more people like you who have to go through and die to be brought to heaven first. Here we have the group assembled. This is that group of people that God has brought to heaven They've been delivered from the, from the tribulation. They are clothed in white robes. That means that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed unto them. They didn't put them on themselves. It's a significance or a symbol of Christ's righteousness being accounted to them. It's the same white robes that the martyred saints under the altars of, uh, of God wore in the fifth seal. So they have white robes. They are truly believers. Now, look at the end of verse Nine, because here's a big difference between this group and the first group that we looked at. It says they are standing before the throne of God. That means they're dead. They're in heaven already. 144,000 witnesses were protected on earth. But this multitude is dead. They're in heaven. Their souls now are in the presence of God. And you go, wait, 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 wait. I thought you said God delivered them through the tribulation. God delivered them from the tribulation. God delivered them from the wrath of God. God delivered them from the judgment that was being poured out on the earth. And what better way could God deliver anyone from all of that by removing them from the situation? And that's exactly what he does. He's delivered these martyrs through death. Remember, for Christians, for believers, death is not the end. Death is just the beginning. It's the portal 
through which we have to go to be in God's presence. And here these people have been delivered through death. They've been martyred, killed. See, we have to look at deliverance from God's perspective, not our perspective. There are a lot of times that we pray to be healed, right? Especially as believers, when we pray for God's healing for some sickness or or disease that we have. And we think, well, God, I want you to restore my body. I want you to get rid of this sickness so that my body will function the way it's supposed to function. And I won't feel so bad. Is that permanent if he does give you healing that way? How many of you have only been sick once in your life and God healed you and never been sick again? Yeah, okay, it doesn't work. That's not the way it works. See, we pray for the temporary so much we miss the permanent. In God's perspective, when he wants to ultimately heal somebody, he brings them to heaven. No more pain. No more suffering. You'll never get sick again. In fact, you'll never die. So from God's perspective, ultimate healing is leaving this life. But we don't look at things that way because we are short-sighted and temporal in our approach. And so instead of praying, Lord, whatever you want, obviously I want to be in your presence. But right now I, I want to be here. I want to do the things I want to do. I want to feel better while I'm doing them. And so we focus on the physical. We don't really pray for ultimate healing many times. And yet God's healing is removing us from the circumstance of sin, removing us from the consequence and the scars and all of the curse of sin that we have in this body. That's healing. And God has healed these millions of martyrs by death on earth. They're in heaven. Verse 9, it says they have palm branches. When were palm branches used? Just a few weeks ago, we came and celebrated Palm Sunday. Remember, Palm Sunday was when the tens of thousands of people took palm branches, put them down in front of Christ as he entered in Jerusalem, proclaimed him as king, worshipped him as the Messiah, So what are these people doing in heaven? Worshiping. Proclaiming him as king. Praising the Lord Jesus Christ for his deliverance. Now, since they're in heaven, obviously they can do this more perfectly than they've ever been able to do it before. There's no interference. There's no distractions. There's no sin to get in the way. There's no self that's going to uh, kind of distort my worship. It's pure, joyous worship of the Lord in heaven. That's the main and most important and most joyous activity. When we get to heaven, we'll be able to worship God purely without any distraction. He's the only thing that matters at that point. We don't have to worry about getting to work on time and paying the electric bill and making sure the car has oil, the oil changed and gas in it and cutting the grass and all the things that distract us on this earth. And I'm not saying they're not necessary. I'm saying in light of who God is, they're really not that important. Yet we put all our effort into that and very little effort into actually worshiping the Lord. We need to get in the mind frame of what we're going to be doing in heaven. This is not our home. We're just strangers, pilgrims, passing through, looking forward. Hopefully, we're looking forward to being in heaven to worship the Lord Jesus Christ in person. Because that's what's going to happen. If you look at their worship, read on. Look at verse 10, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders, and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. You heard that before? It's very similar to what was said in worship in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 about God the Father, and about Jesus Christ the Son, the Lamb. 
And here now we have a whole new group worshiping God in heaven. Basically the same words. You know, after reading the first couple chapters of Revelation, I'm beginning to think maybe we should start memorizing this list that we're supposed to give to God in worship because all the people who are in heaven worshiping the Lord are saying the same things. And I want to know the song when we get there. They're worshiping God, praising him, not just because they've been delivered, but because he's God. Now, Paul, uh, Paul, John says in verse 13, one of the elders answered, saying unto me, what are these things which, what are these which are arrayed in white robes? Whence came they? So John says an elder, one of the elders, that's a representative of the church, walked up to him and said, hey, who are these people? And John says, you know. Now, people speculate and say, well, John didn't know. He didn't understand everything yet. I don't know if he did or not. It doesn't say. It just says his response was, obviously, the elder knew who these people were. And he goes on, verse 14, I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's the answer as to who these people are. They are martyrs who have come out of the tribulation that God delivered them from it. And here they are worshiping God. Verse 15, Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. They are there to worship the Lord. Now again, I've heard people say this. I don't want to go to heaven because it's going to be boring sitting around playing harps and singing hymns. That's not it, folks. You missed the point. That's not what we're going to be doing. We're going to have the privilege, the opportunity to literally stand before the God of heaven, our creator, and see him face to face, to stand before Jesus Christ, our Savior, and see him face to face for the first time and thank him personally. And it's not going to stop. Ever. Because how much thanks is enough for what God's done for us? You could never pay it back. You could never give him enough thanksgiving, enough praise for what he's done. And that's why the worship of God will continue through eternity. And we'll never get tired of doing it. That's the most exciting part of heaven. And if you're not looking forward to being in the presence of Jesus Christ, our Savior, Something wrong with your salvation, I think, or your theology. Because all Christians should be looking forward to that. This great multitude is there to worship the Lord, to praise him. Because that's what people do. That's what everyone, including the angels, do in heaven, is worship the Lord eternally. And then look at the blessings that come out of that as they serve him. Day and night in his temple, that means minister. The end of verse 15, He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them, and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. Remember the first six seals? Remember part of the judgments that were poured out? Famine. Verse 16, They shall hunger no more, they shall thirst no more. When God had the great earthquake in the sixth seal, The sun, the moon, the stars were all affected by that. Look at the second part of verse 16. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. Now, as we read further into Revelation, we're going to find that some of the judgments of God include the sun's heat increasing and men burning, the grass burning up, the trees burning up. They're protected from that, nor any heat. So he's protecting them from tribulation and judgment that we haven't even seen in the book yet. Verse 17, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now, this isn't really a big change in heaven, because Paul says in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply how much of our need? All. All. You believe that? Does God supply all of your need? 
in heaven. The lamb shall feed them, shall lead them unto living fountains of water. Sounds like Psalm 23, doesn't it? He will provide everything we need. Why? Because that's what he promised us. And it's not going to stop just because we're in heaven. But it's going to be perfect when we're in heaven. Not because of him, but because of our perspective, finally, that we have a right perspective of who God is and what he's going to do in his promises. And in the last phrase there, it says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now remember, we're talking about martyrs. These are people who endured extreme physical suffering and persecution on earth, who were killed for their faith, and probably a lot of tears were shed on earth in that process. These are people who prayed, the ones under the altar. They prayed and asked God, why have these people not been avenged? How long is it going to be before our deaths are avenged? And there were probably tears associated with that grief. And now they finally have no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, and all the enemies of God are avenged. And you wonder why they worship? God wipes away all tears forever. All those tears that were shed in the process of waiting for this to happen, God takes care of it. There will be nothing ever to cry about in heaven. Nothing. No sadness, no grief, no disappointment, no frustration, no regret. All tears wiped away. Because in the presence of God is pure joy, pure happiness, the perfect fullness of peace. Now we can have that on earth. The Bible tells us we can have that. But we let other stuff get in our way, interfere with our perspective of what God's doing. In heaven, no more distractions. It's going to be perfect. So in chapter 7, we have these two groups that are delivered from the wrath of God on earth during the tribulation. First, the 144,000 witnesses that are secured and sealed by God's spirit, protected from harm through the entire tribulation period, and those who are marked as the first fruits to go into the kingdom alive. People on earth, human beings, without dying. They're the first group. But then we have this great multitude of believers who have been killed for their faith, now rejoicing and worshiping at the throne of God, delivered from God's wrath in God's way. So here's the question. Will you be delivered from God's wrath, obviously? Will you be one of the people that God delivers from wrath? Or will you have to suffer the wrath? If he comes and you don't believe, then you'll be left behind. And you will go through this tribulation period. And maybe at that point you'll take the truth of God and put it to heart and believe in him and then have to die for that faith. But God's deliverance is there. But if you never believe, if you never take hold of the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and let him be king of your life, then not only will you suffer the wrath on, wrath on this earth, but you will suffer God's wrath eternally in hell, eternally and totally separated from him and all that is good. God is deliverance. God delivers people, those who trust him. And if we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior now, before the tribulation begins, then we'll be delivered all of that. Because we'll, we'll be gone before it all starts. But even better than that, we'll be delivered from what's going on now. From the pain, from the suffering, from the politics. From all of it. Because when Christ comes back to claim his church, we get a go-home-now pass. We do not have to pass go. We do not have to pay $200. Jesus Christ comes, and we're with him. End of story. We're actually beginning of the story. So don't wait until it's too late. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's deliverance. Will you be delivered?
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the things you teach us in it. Even these examples of those people that you would deliver in the tribulation is applicable to us as we see the principles and we see the kind of God that you are. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not lose faith, no matter how hard things get, to continually trust you, to be overcomers in this life so that we will receive the crown of glory that awaits us in the next that we look forward to that day when we stand in your presence, worshiping you and praising you, thanking you for all that you've done and for who you are. Lord, make us truly people of God, light to the world, so that you might be seen by those in darkness. Thank you again for your word today. Use it to accomplish your purpose in us, we pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Our hymn of closing today is 208, Are You Washed in the Blood? 208.